0: This is Reverend John Ferrett, and welcome to Lesson 20 of the Gospel According to Moses. We're going to continue where we left off. We talked about cultural changes with regards to understanding the Bible. And as culture changes, perspectives change from going from one culture to another especially in terms of going from the United States to Mexico or going from Mexico to France, or culture with respect to time, the culture of the United States today as compared to the culture of the United States 200 years ago, 300 years ago. As culture changes, perspectives change. Viewpoints are altered. How many times have we heard, like, An event, like a person, says something to another person, uh, specifics about an event. The second person then tells a third person about the specifics of that event, and the third person tells a fourth and a fourth, a fifth, and so on. By the time you get to the last person, (laughs) it's amazing how the event change and the specifics have changed. And so... In terms of just going from one country to another, from one culture to another, going from one person to another, we can see how things change. And this is so related to the idea that when you look at real study of the cultures around the world today, their history, uh, their culture hundreds and thousands of years ago, there are many, many different stories about a flood. And they're all different. Or all different terms of the cultures across the world. So we're going to address that and take a look at it again. And this is related to us. It's related to us because the Bible is written in English, as we have it today, but it's translated from the Hebrew. It's thousands of years old. And we don't get the full picture. We don't get the full picture because... We're not looking at the Bible in its historical context and how those Hebrew words, which are so related to pictures, may have helped those people understand something not necessarily so radically different from us, but a different perspective, a different view. It's like the word eretz. Eretz, the Hebrew word, it's translated, especially in the flood event, as the whole globe, the whole earth. But Eretz can mean a region like the Rocky Mountains. You can't say the Rocky Mountains covers the entire globe. You can't say the Rocky Mountains cover the entire earth. It's a region. Or a country like Israel. Eretz Eretz Israel. The land of Israel. Eretz there doesn't mean that Israel covers the globe. Israel is not a worldwide country. And Eretz can mean my backyard. I've got a, my wife has a wonderful vegetable garden in the back. That's her land. That's her Eretz. So, Hebrew Eretz doesn't justify a conclusion that the flood was worldwide. So we're going to be taking a look at that concept and again, taking a look how culture, how culture affects our, our, our views and our conceptions. Lastly, again, we're going to ask why the flood? What's the point? What's the lesson? We're dealing with the Torah. The Torah does not mean law. It means instruction. So it's God's Torah, it's God's instruction. So therefore, in this flood event, what's he trying to teach us? What's the point? What is he getting at? We remember in John 5:39 Jesus says that all Scripture testifies of him. He says that in 24 to 30 .AD, the only Bible that they had was the Hebrew scriptures, also known as the Old Testament. And so for a fact, is this possibly related to Jesus? is this testifying of him? So, it's interesting to consider. So you ready? Well, let's go see. Here's lesson 20. Now, I, just to show you how culture changes, I have an article from The Blaze, which was dated um, October 28, 2017, and in here uh, it talks about a plaque that's honoring America's first president, and this plaque was at the church he attended for more than two decades. This is the church that George Washington attended. It's Christ Church in Alexandria, Virginia, and they're removing the plaque. And not only that, they're removing the plaque of George Washington, but also of Robert E. Lee. Because that plaque was also in the same church. The reason why is it's making the church visitors feel uncomfortable and they think it's too controversial. Why? Because Washington owned slaves. And we're beginning to see that there is this view that Robert E. Lee with a complete distortion of history, is this rebel. He's the guy that had the rebel flag, okay? And anti-black, all this type of stuff. A complete dismissal of history. Ladies and gentlemen, the Civil War? How many years ago? George Washington, how many years ago? Do you see how culture is already warping our own heroes within 200 years? How much more the flood story? When was the flood story? Very interesting, but you can see how things radically can change. Do anybody anybody in this room, I really would doubt it, okay, would say that George Washington owned slaves, but you, you need to understand the rest of the history. The same thing with Robert E. Lee, you need to understand this man and actually studying the history. And so for me, I take a look at that, and it's sad for me to see how the culture is warping this. And there's other examples as well. So, the flood seems to me that indeed, I would say, perhaps, uh, definitely a story that's changed as it basically spreads out because of the descendants of Noah. Now, what's interesting is the tremendous amount of flood stories that there are. So we have to account for that. That seems to indicate that something did happen, okay? Now there's one scholar in one article I read. He went through all of these cultures, the Algonquin Indians and the guys in Chile, all sorts. He said, see, it's a worldwide flood. No, you can't do that because it's a misuse of scripture. There's only eight witnesses. And those eight witnesses are in the Turkey area, Syria area and it spreads out from there. So you cannot make the conclusion it's a universal flood by using that argument. It doesn't make any sense. So it doesn't justify a global flood. Let me take you to the, uh, the IVP Bible background of the Old Testament with regards to a flood, uh, even a, uh, a flood that would be universal. Right now, according to um, the IVP Bible commentary, there is presently no convincing Archaeological evidence of the biblical flood. Now you can come to me and you can probably say, I got this website. I got this guy. I got that guy. If there was proof of a universal flood that would be related to the biblical account, do you understand how much the news that it would make if they could actually prove it scientifically? It has not made the news because most of the stuff is opinion and conjecture. There is no proof. For instance... In the city of Jericho, that city has been continuously occupied since 7,000 B.C. 9,000 years ago it was occupied, it was civilized. There were people that living there. That's archaeological proof. But there's been no flood deposits found ever. Very interesting. Another one is the Archaeological Study Bible. In the Archaeological Study Bible, the... Again, we're talking about Genesis chapter 17. There have been arguments for a universal flood, and those that argue that have cited the inclusive languages of verse 19 and 21. So in verse 19, I'm reading from the NIV now, in English, not Hebrew. Okay, this is the mistake we make. In verse 19 in the NIV, it says, they rose greatly on the earth and all the mountains under the entire heavens were covered. So a statement like that automatically, see there's a universal flood. doesn't mean that because we're talking about edats. It could be localized area. And then the other verse is verse 21. Verse 21, every living thing that moved on the earth perished. It doesn't say that. Every living thing on the edats. Now what's fascinating is there have been some interesting finds in Turkey of a major catastrophic floods that would have covered all the hills, not the mountains, but all the hills in the entire area. Now think about it. When you actually read the account of the flood, where was, where was everybody living? Turkey. There weren't that many people on the face of the earth. They lived in a localized area. To them, what's the earth? Turkey. That's it. Noah hadn't been to New York City yet. Okay, He hadn't probably even been to Crete, you know, which is just down the road a piece, getting in a boat. and go- It was a very small area. Today, for various reasons, many conservative scholars are now defending a local flood. The crux of their argument centers in the covenant relationship of God to His people. Noah was not a preacher of righteousness. Remember you read that in the New Testament? Noah was a preacher of righteousness? I'll address that here in just a second. He was not. To peoples of other areas, but was concerned with the culture which Abraham would eventually come. In addition, physical arguments have been raised against a universal flood, origin, and disposal of the amount of water necessary to form a layer six miles thick over the whole world the effect on plant life of being covered for a year, the effect on fresh water life of a sea that contains salt from the ocean, and the fact that many topographical features of the earth, such as cinder cones, show no evidence of erosion by a flood and are thought to be much more ancient than the flood could possibly have been. So, fascinatingly enough, now let me mention this, when they talk about, uh, you've, heard, you've heard it said uh, in the New Testament that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. I checked that out and it just so happens that this is a Jewish legend. It's a a rabbinic story made up by rabbis. It is not biblical and so the writer, and I think it's it's Peter, what's Peter doing? He's using a legend that he grew up with as a boy and he's just using that legend. I have no problem with that whatsoever. He did not know. He was, of, uh, he was under the influence of rabbinic thought at that time that Noah was a preacher of righteousness and actually preached that the flood was coming for 120 years. Absolute legend. Very interesting. So when we come down to it, you guys, what's the conclusion? Was there a flood? I say likely, okay? Though there's been no scientific proof to say a universal flood. Was there a universal flood? Perhaps, but here's the key. In both cases, to actually ask yourself the question, was there a flood? And second of all, was it a universal? You cannot use the Bible. And especially, you cannot use the Bible using English words at all. The Torah is God's instruction book. Torah is not a science book. Remember we started with this in the first lesson? It is not a science book. It's not even a history book, it's God's instruction. So the question is, when God is talking about the flood, and it seems to us, to me, as a historian, when I take a look at the other evidence of other cultures saying there was a flood, it seems to me right now that there was a flood. Local, universal, it's not the issue. Something happened and they knew about it. Because remember, where did the story come from? Eight people, that's it. And it spread from there. So the question to me is, I don't care whether there was a flood or not, and I can prove it. The question is, what's the point of the story? What's the teaching? It's God's instruction. That's the point. I think what we're seeing is this. This is my opinion. So I'm able to teach my opinion right now. We could have good times in terms of going back and forth on that. My opinion is this. God made a statement about mankind that our, the intention of our hearts is to sin continually, both before the flood and after. So he knew the flood wasn't going to work. So for God, there's only two choices. Okay, The two choices is, number one, destroy everybody, including Noah and his family, and then he got rid of the problem, or to keep the problem, and then think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave... His only Son. That's the solution. So what we begin to see for me is God is saying, there is no way this could be wiped out unless He wipes it all out. But God so loves the world, He loves them, He loves us, that He wants to provide that solution. To me, that's kind of a view that I have about the flood. By the way, um, when we look at flood stories, there are many many similarities between the Bible flood story and especially pagan flood stories. What's fascinating is the argument among scholars that the Bible and its account of the flood story was stolen from the Assyrians, stolen from the Canaanites, stolen from the Egyptians. In other words, they just took what was already there and modified it. Guys, when you talk about the similarities, and I really ask you to take a look at this, this is a personal study that you can take a look at, it's very disturbing. They are very similar. However, Dr. John Kareed, in his book Against the Gods, his statement in this book is, if you don't understand Egypt, you cannot understand the Torah. Reason being, who was the Torah written to? Not to you and not to Jewish people. But it was kind of written to Jewish people because they were the ones that were coming out of Egypt. These are the ones who received the books for the first time. So, how did they understand it? Not you. How did they understand it? They didn't know the God of Abraham, they didn't know the God of Isaac. They needed to be reminded. Matter of fact, when we get to the story of Abraham, why do you think it's in the Torah? Because most of the Hebrews forgot the story. They need to understand who Abraham is. So we're going to spend 12 chapters on that one guy. Wow. Why? They forgot him. Okay, we'll be dealing again with the fact that the Hebrews, when they go to Egypt, forgot God. We'll go through that again because it's very important when we get to Abraham. So again, understanding what Dr. Kareed is saying and I also have to bring up a man who has become, for me, um, somebody I admire so much in terms of his approach in teaching the Torah, and that's Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager, many of you know, is on our, our local radio station, and he is a conservative radio announcer from 11 to 2 every day on The Patriot. And by accident, I found out that at his store, he has 25 years worth of Torah lessons from Genesis 1-1 through Deuteronomy 34. He teaches Torah. This is his life. This is his passion. This is his mission in life. He's, he's Jewish. He's not Christian. He has the greatest respect for Christians. He realizes we as Christians uh, are kind of cousins to the Jewish people because we come from that same background. He said the same thing as Dr. John Kareed. But he says it in a different way. This book, the Bible, especially the Torah, one of its themes is its attack against polytheism. Over and over and over again. I remember Dennis in one of his lessons was saying this. Think about it. The Bible is exclusively monotheistic, one God. What happens when you have polytheism? With polytheism, if you have two gods, you have two moralities. If you have three gods, you have three moralities. Now think about our own culture today and think about we believe in the God of the Bible, However and we believe in certain things that are right and wrong? And do you realize that our culture today thinks we're nuts? They don't agree with our God because it's not the same God they have. They have a different morality. And so therefore, killing a baby in the womb? No problem. It's a woman's right. That's a different morality. It's polytheism Even though the people who would say that don't say, we believe in God X, okay? That's a completely different worldview. So, when you look at the similarities, what we need to take a look at that is the differences. What are the differences in the flood story that are in the Bible as compared to the others? The Bible is exclusively monotheistic. And it's an attack against polytheism all the way through. This is one of the main purposes of that flawed story. So ancient Near East, polytheistic, the Epic of Atarhasis. Um, And Atarhasis, which came hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the Epic of Gilgamesh. Everybody quotes the Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh yeah, that's the ancient story from the pagan. No, it's not. It came from... Uh, the epic of Atrahasis, which is even older. And there the gods said mankind was making too much noise, so we're going to kill them. That was the reason for the flood. Okay. In other places, in in other uh, cultures, man was a servant of the gods. And on top of that, there was a total lack of morality. But when we take a look at our story, when we take a look at the Bible story, it's monotheistic and... It wasn't him. Man was overwhelmingly evil. It was a focus in on man. Man was made in God's image. And in God's image, it was, we had such a relationship with him. We weren't servants of the gods. We were made in his image. And in Genesis 6-5, God says that man's heart is to yetzerah. In other words, to produce evil continually in his heart. Now, in the ancient Near East, their flood stories are all... Um, basically um uh, what do i want to say mythology they're all mythology they're all stories they're written as mythology they're written as poems all right these are leg- legends of the operation of the universe controlled by gods now in that mythology of the ancient the East, it's all poetry and prose however what's fascinating about the writer of genesis he writes it as historical fiction and when you study historical fiction from the ancient Near East, you can find that our Bible is historical fiction, not poetry and not prose. Fascinating. In the ancient Near East, men did not, or there was no relationship of the man and gods. But here, in the Bible, especially after the flood, God has a covenant with man. There's a special relationship that God has with man—a personal relationship—that in all the ancient Near East cultures. For instance, uh, I remember one story, one of the uh, creation stories in Egypt was one of the, I think it was Amun-Ra, maybe it was Pata, I can't remember. I think it was Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra lost his daughter, and she was lost someplace in the world. And he started crying because he wanted his daughter to come back. This is an an Egyptian uh, creation account. And as his tears fell, they turned into men and women. In other words, in Egypt, men and women were made by accident. In the Bible, men and women are made on purpose. And again, when we take a look at the differences as compared to the flood stories and the stories from the ancient Near East. Oh, and by the way, this is interesting. In the ancient Near East, you'll read accounts where the passengers, there was passengers on the boat. The, uh, they were the builders, the boatmen, the relatives, friends, And the hero himself. And on top of that, even the gods. So you had a bunch of passengers. What happened in our story? Just Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their three daughters. That's it. Here's something fascinating. I have to go uh, a little bit of a bunny trail. Noah was instructed to build an ark by God. Ark, the Hebrew word is tevah. And the again the strong's number is H eighty three ninety two for those of you that are interested interested. Now, this ark that God asks Noah to actually build his Teva, we say here's a righteous one, righteous for his time. He's picked by Adonai. He's guided by God. The ark is guided by God. It's controlled by God. And on top of that, there's a new beginning. So here is God putting Noah in the ark. A new beginning is going to happen on the teva. Think about Moses. Was he put in the basket? Oh, sure, we say. We saw the movie. No, the Hebrew word in the Bible, Moses was put in a teva. He was put in an ark. The same word used for the ark that God asked Noah to build. So now you have Moses, a righteous one. He's picked by Adonai. The Teva is guided by God to the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, for a new beginning for Israel. It's the same purpose. It's a repeat. A Teva. God is trying to show us, inspiring Moses, said, Look at that word, Teva. If you don't understand the Hebrew and you say basket, we don't see the connections. It's just like comforter. God, this is God's instruction. He's really trying to get to us. Amazing, amazing. So here's the polemic, another p- a part of the polemic angle. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, as John Corrine mentions it in his book, Against the Gods, we have the gods who basically say, okay, um, we're, we're going to... Um, create this flood. And what's interesting is, let me I gotta read this. So they create the flood, the gods, okay, in the battle of Gilgamesh, or the epic of Gilgamesh. Now listen to this. The gods were frightened by the deluge. And shrinking back, they ascended to the heaven of Anu. The gods cowered like dogs, crouched against the outer wall. The gods all humbled, sit and weep. They're in fear of the flood that they brought upon the earth. Our God, oh, there's a flood, no problem. Not worried about it. Matter of fact, don't worry about it. I got a number of days here, Noah, and the flood will go down. Our God, he's, he controls nature. He is in power over nature. On top of that, with regards to the end of the flood, there were the sacrifices of the heroes. So the hero in the battle of or in the epic of Gilgamesh, actually sacrifices to the gods. Okay, now listen to this. The gods smelled the savor. The gods smelled the sweet savor of, obviously, the frying flesh. The gods gathered around it like flies. That's in the epic of Gilgamesh. And for us, what does God do? He smells the sweet savor. Does God have any necessary to eat? The goat, or no. Okay, God is not, doesn't eat it. But he smells it and he realizes this is a wonderful sacrifice that Noah made. I think I'm going to make a covenant with him. He doesn't gather around like flies, but all the pagan gods gather around like flies. So, a conclusion we have with regards to the flood there are eight survivors and they still have their inclination to sin. So, the flood didn't do a darn thing. Can't erase the gift of free will. He wants Noah and his wife and his sons and his daughterless. to have free will. He understands the risk. God understands that risk, and now he's got to do something about it. We know the rest of the story. It's the gospel. It's good news. There is a way out of this. Now, he develops a covenant, and we know he makes a covenant with all mankind. And on top of that, with all animals. He's basically saying, listen, you guys, this is not Jews. He's not making a covenant with Jewish people. Noah is not a Jew. That's Abraham. Abraham, his descendants, they're Hebrews. He's the first Hebrew. He's not even here yet. This is worldwide. So God makes a covenant with all of us and with all the animals. And so for us, there's only one way to solve the dilemma of our man's inclination to sin. And that's the covering of the blood of the Lamb. So, are we surprised? Jesus said all scripture testifies of him. He said that in 24 to 30 AD. And all they had then was the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, was the foundational books of the scripture then. So the flood event seemingly testifies of Jesus, testifies of the good news. Now in lesson 21, we're going to be asking another question. Who's Noah? so happens that both Jewish and Christian scholars have questioned this. Who is he? What's his character? Why did God pick him? Some say Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Matter of fact, Peter does that. One of the disciples of Jesus. He says this in 2 Peter 2, verse 5. But it's the only place in the entire Bible where it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So while he's building the ark, he's telling everybody to repent and turn back to God. Really? (laughs) Torah does not say that. There's nowhere in the Old Testament it's the only Bible Peter had. So where did he get it from? Very interesting question that we're going to have to take a look at. So we're going to see you in lesson 21. As we again go deeper in his word. As we follow Jesus when he said in John chapter 8, Abide in my word. Which means a stand in his word. Depend upon his word trust in his word live and endure life based upon his word this worldview of the kingdom of god and then we will know the truth and the truth will set us free so i'll see you in lesson 21. shalom